Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Deborah Farmer-Chris, a parent educator, education journalist, and founder of Parenthood 365. She's been featured in the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, CNN, and beyond, and she's the author of several children's books, including I Love You All the Time. Deborah, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with the story that you wrote for the Washington Post in 2021. It's about the importance of awe. And you began that article, as you often do, with a personal story. And I'm just going to quote you here. When my dad shook me awake at 2 a.m., I grumbled my way out to the backyard and onto the quilt he'd spread out for me and my four siblings. Moments later, a streak of light sliced the sky. And then another. For hours, until the sun lit the horizon, we watched the cosmic dance of the Perseid meteor shower. And I start with that because my own dad did the exact same thing. And I reacted the exact same way. I, was just, I could not believe I was getting dragged out of bed for this. And although my own son is only one, when he's old enough, you better believe I'm going to be doing this with him for the next meteor shower. And it's interesting, Deborah, that I remember that night even today, you know, even after I've had a thousand other nights that have sort of blurred together and, and faded away. How are you and your family finding awe these days? Well, I took my son to our first Red Sox game of the season uh, a few weeks ago. And as we walk in, we're looking at the storied Fenway Park and we go to the Jimmy Fund Cancer Memorial and we look for the uncle of one of his good friends who was a Jimmy Fund ambassador who passed away. And then because it was Juneteenth, not only did they sing the national anthem, but a black chorus saying lift every voice. In if you've no Boston at all, during the eighth inning, everybody stands up to sing Sweet Caroline and there are 30,000 people singing it together. And then after it ends, my son, who ate way too much popcorn and ice cream, ended up vomiting in some bushes. And some <laughs> woman passed us and ran back and handed me just a whole bunch of napkins, right? And I got home after this chock full time and I thought, all right, the main sources of awe are things like music and collective activity well being at the game singing these songs together their encounters with life and death they are being in nature i'm looking at the cloud patterns that being in this open air and it's the goodness of others right the woman the stranger who stopped to help my son and i and of the eight sources of awe as i thought about the night we ticked off all of them and it wasn't so much that these things wouldn't have happened if i hadn't studied awe but they allowed me to appreciate them and to talk about them with my son in a way I might not have otherwise. So when I discovered the research on awe, I've been a teacher, a parent educator, all of that for years. I, I felt like I had stumbled upon such a treasure. I mean, I think a lot of times in parent education, we think about what do I do for my kids? And this really became, how do I do this for myself? And 
it flows outwards toward my parenting because awe is an emotion that has research behind it. The sense of mystery and wonder when we encounter something beyond the ordinary frame of reference. And the great part of it is you don't have to go to the Grand Canyon for this. You don't have to go and hear Yo-Yo Ma in Central Park. It's everyday things. One really practical example is every day I go walking with the dog and often I drag my kids with me. And there's research on something called awe walks, which really just means that while you're walking, you turn your attention outward instead of inward. So instead of listening to the podcast or running through your to-do list, you look at the clouds, you notice what's happening with the flowers in the neighborhood or the sounds of the birds. I've become a big bird listener since doing all of this research. And all walks really help enhance overall well-being and a sense of wellness and connectedness. You know, whether it's awe or relationships or developing empathy or any number of things you've written about, what got you interested in the science of parenting, so to speak? My teaching. So I spent many, many years as a classroom teacher. I taught elementary, I taught middle, I taught high school, I was an administrator. And, you know, when you're a teacher, you're partnering with parents all the time. And the kids that I always just in so many ways you just love the most um, are those who are struggling because you know, you're throwing so much effort into it. And so when I have these meetings with parents, I found that I was pretty good at translating part of what I was seeing, but I realized I wanted even more science behind the collective wisdom that you know we could kind of offer and come together. And so I thought about going into educational administration for my master's, but I ended up getting a degree in counseling psychology, not because I wanted to be a psychologist, but because I wanted to be able to help parents more effectively. And so when I took a break from teaching uh, for a while, when my kids were young, I began to get more and more into journalism and writing about child development. So I would find just an awesome article or research study that oftentimes the person who wrote it and did the research wasn't even thinking about parenting, but I'd see the parenting angle and translate it for parents. And that just became one of my favorite activities. Deborah, so you've written a lot over the years. You've got articles in the Washington Post. You've been on NPR. When you think about your body of work, I'm curious, are there any studies you've read or scientists you've interviewed that particularly surprised you or that particularly stand out for one reason or another? So many, but I'll just touch on two. Uh, there was a study that came out of Columbia University School of Education, and it was looking at 10th graders in New York City and their perception of science class and whether or not they felt like they could be scientists. And, you know, when they were asked what makes a good scientist, they gave all the normal lines. But then when they were asked whether they could perceive themselves as a scientist, the vast majority said absolutely not. And so the intervention was to have some students read just a basic biography of, of a scientist and another read one that's focused on the struggles of the scientists, whether that was because of their gender or race or family background or poverty or different failures. And those kids who learned about scientists' struggles, it not only affected their perception of whether they could be a scientist, but it actually improved their grades and achievement in science six months later. And I, I thought that was such a fascinating, simple but concrete look at why helping kids think about struggle in a different way is so efficacious because it's so easy for kids to say, I'm struggling at this, therefore I am no good at it. And to perceive struggle as part of the journey is not something I think we're always very good at communicating. And I think for kids being able to see struggle, it's a productive part of the journey. So 
that would be one. I also recently had the most wonderful conversation with Nina Krauss, and I wrote a couple of articles based on her work. She's an auditory neuroscientist out of Northwestern University. She has a lab called BrainVolts. And this book is basically her love letter to the auditory world. And again, she did not write it for parents, but it was chock full of examples of how music helps our kids' brain development and how noise, which is different than sound, really can impact children's brains as well. That it's children whose classrooms were nearest the subway tracks in Chicago underperformed on testing versus their peers on the opposite side of the building. And that how sound is this first alert system. So all these dings that our kids have on their phones and iPads, that it's keeping our brains in a constant low level state of alert. I just found that to be such a useful, fascinating study. So I'm always looking for those gems of, okay, so what can I do? Well, I can turn off notifications on my son so that we're not constantly distracted by these dings, which are in fact keeping us in a state of alert, which is draining for our, our attention capacity. Well, speaking of gems, one of the many things we appreciate about your work is that you don't shy away from the how-tos. You're always bridging research with practice, oftentimes in very personal ways. And of course, we're trying to do the same with our own book, When You Wonder You're Learning. Now, there's a danger in that, right? Because now you're looked upon as an expert. So how has being a parent educator and an education journalist changed your approach to being a parent and to parenting? Part of the reason that this work is so fulfilling for me and that it seems to resonate with my readers and the workshops I give is that I don't shy away from sharing my own foibles and struggles because children are not vending machines. It's not like we put in the right change and out comes this perfect child. There's no such thing. We are given these kids in front of us. We have to deal with the kid we have, not the kid we might have expected. And our most vulnerable sides come out. The feedback I often get is it's you're relatable because you're not afraid to share your struggles. And what I often say is one of the great parts about studying child development is I know where to look if I'm struggling. I know experts to call. And often I can say, you know, hey, I'm doing an article for the Washington Post because parents want to know more about blank. But really, it's me. Right? I'm the one who wants to know. <laughs> I find it useful. I try it out. It may work with one child and not the other. But I'm growing and learning along the way. Another way it's influenced my parenting is that it's made me more conscious because I'm always trying to be present and be thinking about the gap between what I know theoretically and what comes out instinctively, because we often revert to instinct based on how we were raised. And especially in the field of emotional wellness and emotional vocabulary, which was one of my favorites, I wasn't raised in a household where we talked a lot about emotion. Neither were most of the parents that I talk to now of my generation. And so... I have to constantly examine what I know is best practice versus what pops out of my mouth because that's how I was raised. And that's a really useful, reflective practice. And I don't always love what I see, but you know, self-compassion is something else that I research. So I try to practice it. Speaking of self-compassion, Deb, I love your online bio, which says Deborah and her husband have two kids who like to test every theory they've ever had about child development. And so I want to ask you the sort of uh, mirror world or inverse of Greg's question. So how have your kids changed the way you write about parenting? My kids are so cool because uh, <laughs> all kids are so cool, right? I mean, I love child development. It never ceases to amaze me. The kids in my classrooms, the, the kids in my life. And I think that because I'm writing about it, I pay attention even more than I might have 
to the awesome things that come out of their mouth, to what I say that works and doesn't, to small moments where I am seeing one of them be particularly kind or get curious. And I want to see where that fascination is leading. And so being a parenting writer is always a lesson in humility because you know what all the experts say. And I don't think my job is to be an expert. I often think of my job as to being a translator and I want to be able to help other parents find a little more joy, a little more ease sometimes, not always available, and a little more purpose in this amazing work we're called to do. This is Greg Baer along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with parent educator and education journalist, Deborah farmer Chris. Deborah, we can't help but notice that lots of your articles quote someone about whom we're obviously very fond, Mr. Rogers. So did you grow up watching The Neighborhood? My mother tells a story about how when it ended, I used to go and hug the screen and and say goodbye to Mr. Rogers, like hugging the TV screen. Yeah, (laughs) I, I grew up watching it. And then Daniel Tiger came out when my oldest turned one. And so I heard the intro sound to Daniel Tiger and I burst into tears. <laughs> so excited that my children were going to be able to have kind of exposure to really the sense of warmth and safety and acceptance that Mr. Rogers imbued. I mean, you know, I felt it as a kid. I studied him as an adult. I've been lucky enough through PBS Kids to, I'm kind of like their Fred Rogers correspondent. If there's ever an article, they know to reach out to me. So I've had a chance to talk a few times to Angela Santanero about her work. And as she told me once, we all need a little more of the Freddish way of life in our life. Don't we? And I love your experience as a kid and then as a parent because it mirrors my own. So revisiting Fred now as a grown-up, what intrigues you about Fred? What keeps you going back to his work? Fred Rogers had a way of taking childhood seriously. You know, now we have much more emphasis on emotional literacy and being able to talk with our children and to discipline in ways that honor our child and the dignity of the child. And his work didn't just honor the dignity of children. He helped children feel special. And that's not a word I use lightly. It's one of his key words. You know, knowing we can be loved exactly as we are gives us the best opportunity for growing into the healthiest of all people. And I think there was and often still is a perception is that, you know, kids are just works in progress, right? They're not fully formed. And he interacted with children in the moment as they were as a full person because they are full people deserving of that dignity. And I am just constantly astonished when I read so much of his work and then I still find gems where I say he was so ahead of his time, but really is the dignity of the child that I think will never go out of fashion. Deborah, you are the author of a series of books written around the theme of all the time. And these books are, you have feelings all the time, you are growing all the time, I love you all the time, and you wonder all the time. All very Fred-like in their sensibilities. Can you tell us a bit more about those books? So what sparked the idea for them and what do you hope they do for kids and families? Oh, you know, I literally just got back from reading them to about 100 preschoolers today. I do a lot of preschool readings. So the first book was I Love You All the Time, and I didn't expect it to be a series. I didn't expect to be a children's book author, but that really came from a moment where my oldest was having a meltdown as a toddler. And so I scooped my kid up on my arms and I said, you know, I really love you when you're mad. 
And she calmed down and kind of looked at me funny. And so I said, you know, I love you when you're happy. I love you when you're sad. I love you when you're scared. I love you when you're mad because I love you all the time. And that became my mantra for my kids, which of course is very Fred Rogers as well, is that all of our emotions are okay. And whoever you are before me at this moment, I love you. And so that became the first book. And then that just snowballed with my wonderful publisher into this series. You have feelings all the time is about developing an emotional vocabulary. There's just such great research that learning how to say what you are feeling, even beyond just mad or sad, but frustrated, that in itself can help us tame, navigate our emotions and make better choices. You wonder all the time is really a collection of questions my kids asked me when they were younger, because like you and like Fred Rogers, I do believe that wonder is a source of all real learning. It's also just the source of our internal motivation. If we wonder about something, we want to learn. And then you're growing all the time comes actually directly from Fred, where he talks about how he uses the phrase growing on the inside to talk about all those wonderful things we should be marking. So we are used to talk about how tall somebody's growing or look how big you're getting, but Look how compassionate you're becoming, how responsible, how kind, all that in the things that aren't as obvious. So this is a book that celebrates a young child's, the development of their character, really. Deborah, you write about all of this stuff and more also on your Substack, which is called Parenthood 365. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What can readers or potential readers expect? I can't help but write. And so... I'm often working on articles or other pieces, but this becomes my, my brain dump to when I find that awesome book or study or story that I just get excited about sharing, that this is a place where I can send it out to my readers who are mostly parents and educators to be able to kind of share the wonder and share the joy. Well, speaking of joy, we want to close with three joyful questions. The first one, Deborah, what's your favorite memory from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? It's hard for me to know whether this is from childhood or now, because I've seen it so many times now, it's blurred. But when the fish died, and I had a lot of pets growing up, I lost pets, I had a dear fish. And more times than I can count, I've watched that clip and I have memories of seeing it when I'm younger, just the way he was able to talk about the death of the fish. And that may not sound joyful, but it, for me, it was just one of those moments where grown up is talking to kids in real ways. And I loved that about Mr. Rogers, how when he talked, he felt like he was talking to me. I had a dear friend who grew up in a very difficult household who told me once that Sesame Street taught her how to read, but Mr. Rogers taught her how to hope. It's not just one moment. It's the memory of how you felt when you felt like he was talking to you. Deborah, question number two. How can people find out more about Deborah Farmer Chris and the work you're doing? If you go to parenthood365.com, it's all my social links and article links and book links are aggregated there. And while we can go on for hours, one last question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? Your presence. And I, I know that might sound cliched, but I often go back to the study from the Harvard Center for the Developing Child about resilience. And after they looked at everything else, what it really came down to was the presence of at least one supportive, caring adult that was consistent in their life. We have days where you want to press the do-over button, but being there for kids, listening, being a steady, consistent presence, day in and day out, 
that's the good stuff. And you don't know what small things you may say or do that later they'll remember that. You don't know what seed you're sowing, but just showing up, that's everything. Thanks again to Deborah Farmer Chris, a parent educator, an education journalist, a children's book author, and also the founder of Parenthood 365. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.